You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast. For more audio content, please refer to our website. This is baptistchurch.com. Let me uh, take a moment. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you love us, that you care about us. Lord, you know every need that we have. And Lord, we thank you that we are a work in progress, Lord. We're never taken out of your love. And so, Lord, we praise you. We give you glory. You alone are worthy to be praised. We ask you, dear Lord, right now to wrap your arms around us. Lord, let us feel your presence and your power. Lord, do what only you can do. And, and Lord, we give you glory. Help me, dear Lord, to be the tool in your hand. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, Caleb's leading the way here, just like Joshua and Caleb going into the promised land. He's on his way to, to Children's Church. Let's give him a round of applause for leading the way here. Bethany, our trusted leader, is going to be doing Children's Church today. While they are moving in that direction, I want you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Esther, the book of Esther. Now, I don't know if I have this correct, and, and maybe our correspondent here from WLBT can give me an answer here, but is this woman's month, is this the month of uh, women? Is that correct? Last month was Black History Month. This month is... Uh, Women's Month, a time when we recognize a contribution, even historically, to some of the great women in, in, in not only in our nation and our world, but even, even within the church. Now, we're in Esther chapter 4 today. Esther chapter 4, and I want to introduce you to this, this great woman out of the Old Testament. And I've titled this message, The Stewardship of Your Position. The, the stewardship of your position. And I want to begin with a question. Let me ask you, what, what present position do you hold right now in your life? Whatever that may be. You may say, well, I'm a, I'm a wife and a mother. You may say, well, I'm a teacher. You may say, well, I work in a uh, in an organization, whatever that organization may be. It may be in the field of medicine, maybe medical. What position right now do you hold, uh, whatever it may be, wherever you may work, whatever vocation you may be about, what is it? Now, let me ask you another question. How is it, that position you're in, being used for your testimony in the testimony of Jesus Christ. How is that position that you hold right now, how are you using that position to further the kingdom of God? Does that make sense? Say amen. amen. Okay, okay. Now, number one, I'm, there's just two things real quickly. Number one, spiritual principles. Um, in other words, in the position that you hold right now, how are you using that to advance God's kingdom? And number one, how are you living your testimony out in that workplace, in that environment? In other words, you and I are living out the spiritual principles of God's kingdom and of the scripture. Now, how are you doing that? Are you living out spiritual principles that you understand that are in the Bible 
as you live them out, you are a, a Bible that some people will never read. You are Jesus in that workplace. People are looking at you and they see spiritual principles that govern your life and in some ways you see the kingdom of God advancing in that place where you work or where you live. Does that make sense? Secondly, how are you using that position to better the lives of other people? Now I want you to think about that for a minute. Is that position that you hold being used to make the life of other people better? Are you confronting injustices when you, when you see them in your workplace? For example, if you see somebody mistreated uh, because of their color, are you the kind of person that would take a stand, black or white? When you see racial prejudice, when you see people that maybe they are uh, maybe they're homeless. You know, I heard uh, Dr. Martin Luther King, I was listening and I've been working on a book on race, race relations and that's the reason I was out last Sunday. But Dr. King made this statement, he said, it's hard to tell a man to pick himself up by the bootstraps when he doesn't have no boots. Somebody asked me, he said, you know, you've spent years, I've spent nearly my whole life in race relations. Somebody asked me, what do you think was the greatest damage done to the civil rights movement? And I said, without any reservation, the death of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Nothing affected civil rights more than his death. I said, because he was a Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela was the leader in, in the dismantling of apartheid in South Africa, Nelson Mandela, who spent nearly 30 years of his life unjustly in prison, came out with a forgiving spirit, with a love about him. He wrote one of the great books. If you've not read it, I challenge you to read it, A Long Walk to Freedom. It's his story. It's a fascinating individual. He was a Nobel Prize winner. He was a pillar in civil rights around the world. That's the caliber of the leadership of Martin Luther King Jr. And his early death was a de decisive blow in the area of civil rights. So let me go back to this. Whatever position you hold right now, how is that position helping people make their lives better? How are you standing against some of the social injustices. Let me give you an illustration. Steve Taylor, friend of mine, with me in Zimbabwe for years, Steve Taylor was preaching. He was a pastor at First Baptist Church, Albuquerque, New Mexico. He was preaching, he was preaching a pro-life message. But as Steve Taylor was preaching there at First Baptist Albuquerque, he was preaching a strong message about how important it is to allow children to be born, taking a strong stand against abortion. He said that while he was praying, ending the message, or at the close of the message, he felt a tugging on his pant leg. When either he opened his eyes after praying or he turned from a conversation, he turned to look and there was a boy with Down syndrome. And that boy looked up at him and with tears in his eyes, he said, thank you, Brother Steve, for standing up for us. Let me ask you something. 
in your position that you hold, do you stand up for anybody? Are you making humanity better? Are you making the lives of men and women better? Do people come first in your job? Let me ask you that. Are you concerned about people more than you are money? So you see, all of this is real important. So as we come to the book of Esther, chapter 4, and, and today I'm going to kind of bring you up to date and kind of do a little bit of narrative preaching to kind of bring you to where we need to be. But in Mordecai chapter 4, there's a conversation between Mordecai and Esther, and in a, in a moment it will make sense. But at a certain point, he says in verse 12, let's pick up Esther 4, 12. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this, essay, this answer. Mordecai is speaking to Esther, who is the queen of the Persian Empire. The people, the Jewish people, are about to be put to death, to be removed, just like the Jewish people in the Holocaust by Hitler, the Jewish people are about to be removed off the face of the earth. Esther is the queen. If she approaches the king, Xerxes, we believe, the first, if she approaches him without being called, she could die. And so she's got to take a stand for what is right and for people from the position that she holds that the outcome of that means that she could lose her life in the process. But if she doesn't say anything, the Jewish people will be removed from the face of the earth. They'll be annihilated. And so she's wrestling with what to do. In verse 12, of Esther chapter 4, Esther's words her, her, her struggling to know what to do, were reported to Mordecai. Mordecai, her cousin who had raised her, sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's household, in the palace, you alone of all the Jews will escape. Because she too was a Jew. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance are you there? Relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to the royal position for such a time as this. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you love us. And we pray, dear Lord, you wrap your arms around us and help us to understand, Lord, your position and our position. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let me begin, first of all, with a little bit of background as to this woman named Esther. Who is she? Now, if you go back and you look in the Old Testament, real briefly, let me give you a quick history lesson. After the death of David, his son Solomon, you remember, became king of Israel, right? Solomon ruled. Solomon was a wise man, but Solomon, he had, he had his skeletons in the closet. In fact, they weren't in the closet. 
He had 700 wives, 300 concubines. A lot of those relationships were in order to network with political powers of his day and to create this vast kingdom that militarily had been established by his father, King David. After Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam is about to take the position of king. But the people begin to... There's an uprising against the leadership of Rehoboam. And so Israel, the nation of Israel, made up of 12 tribes, 10 of those tribes to the north go with Jeroboam, two of those tribes to the south go with Rehoboam, and so the nation of Israel was split. Okay, is everybody with me? The nation of Israel is split. To the north, you have 10 tribes under the leadership of Jeroboam. To the south, you have the tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And remember, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So you have Benjamin and Judah to the south, and they're ruled by a man by the name of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. So now Israel's divided. Eventually, eventually the prophets begin to warn the nation of Israel that because of their immorality, because of their debauchery, because of their depravity, that it's just a matter of time before God judges them. Isaiah comes along and begins to warn them. The Assyrians, the world power of that time, the Assyrians, they come into the northern kingdom, in that northern kingdom made up of those ten tribes who they worshipped in places called Dan and Bethel. They came into the north and they basically conquered the northern kingdom, took the northern tribe, that northern kingdom, and carried them into captivity. Nineveh, Jonah would have been a preacher to the Assyrian Empire and to the capital uh, Nineveh. Okay, so everybody with me. The Assyrians will eventually be defeated by the Babylonians. The Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar, they'll become the world power. They'll defeat the Assyrians. And they'll not only come in and take domination over the northern kingdom, they come on down into Jerusalem, down into those tribes of Benjamin and Judah, and they take them into captivity into Babylon. Let me give you some names. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. These are all those people that are carried into captivity back to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Is everybody with me now? If you look in your Bible from, from Genesis to Malachi, a lot of times in study Bibles, it'll have pre-exilic, exilic, post-exilic. Exilic means exile, and it means primarily the Babylonian exile. So if you look at Isaiah, and it says, let's say, pre-exilic, prophet, what it means is is that Isaiah was prophesying before the Jews went into exile into Babylon. It's not Assyrian, it's primarily the Babylonian exile. When you read Nehemiah, Nehemiah's post-exilic, which means that Nehemiah under the Persians, we'll talk about that in a moment, returns to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. That's after the Babylonian exile, after those Jews are allowed to return home. Is everybody with me so far? If I'm confusing, you can go ahead and leave now and go to lunch. As my, as my grandson said a moment ago out loud, he said, I'm tired. <laughs> and you may be too. But that gives you a little, bit of, a, a little bit of the history. The Babylonians will eventually, well, let me give you an example. There was a king, you remember his name was Belshazzar. And in Daniel chapter 6, Belshazzar sees some handwriting on the wall. He's the last Babylonian king. He sees this handwriting on the wall. And as, as the queen mother says, listen, 
uh, let's bring Daniel in on this. Daniel comes in and interprets it. Basically says to the king of Babylon, you've been weighed in the balance, been found wanting, and your kingdom's going to come, come to an end. And when I was working on my doctorate back at RTS, I told you Dr. R.C. Sproul used to take us and he would stand up, he would have us stand up. He might call you to read the genealogy, he might call you to read whatever passage. I'll never forget this one because we were, I had to stand up, I think I was one of them, but we had to stand up and say, and on that night King Belshazzar. And R.C. Sproul said, I want, to fill a, I want to see a knife with blood dripping from it. He believed in how you handle the word of God. The Babylonians were defeated by the Medes and the Persians, and eventually the Persians would become the dominant world power. And the Persians would then lead. This is the context where we find the book of Esther. The Babylonians have been defeated. The Medes and Persians are now the world empire. And under the Persians, Esther comes to this point. Now let me give you something that's interesting. Archaeological evidence confirms everything that we read about the book of Esther. Even archaeological evidence confirms the existence of a man by the name of Mordecai who served on Xerxes the first court. So, you know, sometimes when we struggle about the credibility, but with the Bible, as people try to attack it, they forget archaeology has only been around since the 1870s, and everything we discover confirms the word of God. They, real quickly, the Medes and the Persians, Persians become the world power. The Persians will eventually allow Darius, some of the leaders will allow they will allow the Jewish people to return to Israel where they'll begin to rebuild the temple, rebuild the walls, and once again return to their homeland. The Persians will eventually be defeated by a man you all know, a man by the name of Alexander the Great. His father before him and then finally Alexander the Great will conquer the known world. That will be the Grecian or the Greek Empire which through the language and the networking of highways would set the stage for the New Testament and the launching of the gospel. The Greeks would be eventually, the four generals under Alexander the Great would eventually divide up the Grecian Empire, but that would finally be taken over by the Roman Empire. Everybody listen closely. The Roman Empire was the last world power. There's not been a world empire since. Most people who study end-time prophecy believe the last world empire will be an empire under Satan himself, the Antichrist. There's no world single empire today that controls the world. Now with all that, with all that said, there is a, we are introduced to Esther during the Persian Empire. Esther, like her family, has been, they are exiled. They're in a land that is not their land. They're in the Persian Empire under Persian rule. Her mom and dad have both died. She's an orphan. So she's raised by her cousin who was older than her, a man by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai had raised her. He had been like both father and mother to Esther. So Esther is an orphan in an alien land whose both parents have died, and she's being raised by, by her cousin Mordecai. 
Now remember, the Jewish people are an enslaved, exiled people. Now, real quickly, let me take you back. How does Esther become queen? Esther becomes queen because when you go back and you read the first chapter, Xerxes has a queen and her name is Vashti. And she's captivatingly beautiful. And he has a big party that may have lasted for months. I mean, they had been down at Buffalo Wild Wings and they had set up residence in Buffalo Wild Wings. And there comes a point before militarily they're beginning this great campaign, he decides that he wants to bring the queen in and let all the men look at her. And he wants her to wear only the crown. Did you hear me? He wants her to come completely nude nothing but the crown, and be paraded before this massive, depraved party of all of his political leaders. And Vashti sends back this message, it'll be a cold day in hell, I do. <laughs> she is not a happy camper. Well, you don't say no to the Persian king, but she did. Now, when, when the king kind of, when he kind of came to himself and he kind of sobered up and he finally left Buffalo Wild Wings and went home and kind of got his drink to half pot of coffee, kind of got his mind back, he realized that he had messed up. But his officials look at him and say, listen, if you don't deal with this in some kind of disciplinary way, she has, because see, they were having a women's conference at the time. And, and they were having a women's conference at the time. And, 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 and I'm, I'm being honest with you, they believe this is true. They were having a women's conference at the time when, they, when, the, when it was sent word that Vashti needed to get the crown on and get over there because the king wanted to just parade her before all the guys. And so the queen said no. When she sent word no, she also sent word no with all those women hearing that she had said no. So the officials come to the king after he sobered up and they said, listen, we got a real problem here. And I tell you what the problem is. If you don't deal with your queen, if you don't deal with Vashti, then what you have done, you have emboldened all the women of your kingdom, our wives, to do the same thing. They're going to become rebellious, defiant. I mean, we're looking at the seedbed of the women's lib movement. And so basically what they said, you need to, so the king banishes her probably to his harem, never to be brought to him again, never to be brought to him again. So here's Queen Vashti. She's now been basically exiled out of the palace, in the harem, never to see the king again. Well, the king's got one problem. He ain't got a queen. And so this is where, you know, a lot of people, they kind of wonder where the bachelor, you remember the bachelor and the bachelorette? That, that's about the most illogical show I've ever seen in my life. I mean, that doesn't even make sense. For, especially in the bachelorette. Now, maybe I'm speaking from a man, but they ain't no man going to want to be with a woman who's been hugged and held by 30 other men and they've been watching it happen. And they can go back and watch all the previous telecast 
So that don't even make sense to me. But I, I, it, it, it kind of began here. Because what happened is, is that his officials said, I tell you what you need to do, you need a new queen. And so what, what you need to do, you need to bring all of the eligible women together and you need to bring as many as you feel you need to have. And from that, you need, this was the first Miss Universe, first Miss USA, whatever you want to call it, first Miss Universe. So Mordecai hears of this and Mordecai looks at his young cousin her name is Esther, and she's captivatingly beautiful. She's Miss Jerusalem. She's Miss Israel. I mean, she is the prima donna of the Jewish people. She will literally stop your breath. Ladies, if you don't understand, this is when men can't talk, when a woman's so pretty. They start stumbling over trying what to say. Mordecai says, listen, I want you to put yourself in the mix, but don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Don't disclose your nationality. So she goes into the contest and they begin to fix her up, dress her up. They begin to work with her hair, begin to work with her makeup. They be, she went to yoga class. She went to the, you know, to the cardiovascular class. She, she walked. She got in shape. She was just captivatingly beautiful, sprayed with perfumes, done everything. And finally there came today. The king would bring them in one by one. And when he brought Esther in, absolutely could not believe it. So eventually he's so captivated by her that she wins the contest, she becomes the queen. And there she is. Nobody knows she's a Jew. Now there's a wicked man and his name is Haman. And Haman is the bad guy He's an Agagite. He's, a, he's an Amalekite. He's an enemy of the Jewish people. And Haman is one of the top officials in Xerxes' entire kingdom. He is Xerxes the first right-hand man. And because the Persian people believed that those people who held those positions, like the Romans, they were like deity. And so when they walked through the gate, when they came down the road people had to stop and drop to their knee and bow, pay homage, pay reverence. When you come into the gate, there was this Jew. His name was Mordecai. And while everybody around dropped to their knees when this Amalekite by the name of Haman came in, Mordecai would stand, face looking straight at him, refusing to bow. Ah! Haman couldn't stand it. Now, the the Jews celebrate a festival called Purim, and we're going to stop in a minute. We'll end today. The Jews celebrate because eventually Esther's used to save the Jewish people. They celebrate a festival called Purim, P-U-R-I-M. When they celebrate, celebrate Purim in the Jewish culture, they read the entire book of Esther publicly. And every time Haman's name is mentioned, they have noisemakers that they shake to this day. They also bake pastries they call Haman's ears. And they eat these pastries 
called Haman's Ears. And when they tell the story of Esther, when they come to Haman, every time the name Haman is mentioned, they make these noises and they boo, boo, and they shout. So Haman says to the king, he said, you've got a, you've got a nationality. You've got a group of people. They're not subservient. They're not going to come under authority. They're rebellious. They're defiant. You can check their history. They were to the Assyrians, to the Babylonians, and to your kingdom here in Persia. You're going to have to get rid of them. You're going to have to kill them. Always remember this, Jewish, the nation of Israel's in the news today. It doesn't make any sense. This is a minute portion of the world's population in a country half the size of what New Jersey, of Mississippi. The enemy's always been after Israel. This is just one more example of Hitler and the Holocaust. It's always that way. It's why the world hates Israel. Why anti-Semitism is growing in America today and around the world. Because once again, Israel, this insignificant group of people in a geographical territory, less than half the size of the state, seems to be something spiritual behind it all. Haman is a tool of the enemy, a tool of Satan. He wants to remove the Jewish people from the face of the earth because if he can remove the Jewish people, he can remove Jesus Christ from being the covenant tribe of Judah, prophesied from all the way back to the garden when it said, Satan, one day he will crush your head. And so Haman says, we've got to kill all these people. Mordecai finds out about it. He's a Jew. And on a certain day, all the Jewish people will be killed systematically throughout the Persian Empire. And Mordecai sends word to Esther. Nobody knows that the queen of Persia is a Jew. This is the moment. This is it. You've got to stand. Esther sends back word to Mordecai. If I go before King Xerxes, unsummoned, and he doesn't hold the scepter out to me, I will be killed or banished just like Vashti. And Mordecai says, first, number one, you are a Jew. You won't escape either. Secondly, God will deliver his people whether by you or by somebody God will step in and deliver his people but Mordecai said to Esther but who's to say that God has not called you but for such a time as this has put you in this position for this moment this moment in history and you must do what God has foreordained and purpose for your life. This is it. And you know what she says? She said, okay. 
Mordecai, I ask you to do one thing. Call the Jewish people to pray, to fast. And to fast is what she actually said. Prayer's not mentioned in the book of Esther. God's not mentioned in the book of Esther. Jerusalem's not mentioned in the book of Esther. There's a lot of things that are not in the book of Esther. Martin Luther hated the book of Esther, didn't even want to put it in the canonization of the Bible. She says, fast, which meant fast and pray. And listen to what she said. And if I die, I die. Let's pray. Let's stand. Our Heavenly Father, dear Lord, today we have, we have set the stage for a remarkable Old Testament figure. Her name is Esther. This person who realized and understood that the position that she held was a critical divine position orchestrated and brought by a sovereign God. Esther's life had been a tragedy. Born to loving parents, born in exile. Growing up in a land that was not her homeland. Growing up in a place that was not home to her. Both her parents died. Mordecai, her cousin, left with raising her, bringing her up. Everybody looked this way. We're still praying. Jeffrey and I were at the hospital yesterday at Baptist Hospital. And I, we were getting ready to leave, and I turned around, and you disappeared. He had disappeared. He had stepped into the pharmaceutical area, and he came out with this big, bright, smiling African-American woman, and he was talking to her. And uh, she said, she raised you for a few years. She said, after the fire took your parents and took five people in a fire, right? Five. Which you carry the scars of that to this day. You were a baby that you went in and got out of the fire. And she said, she just smiled so big. She said, I raised Russell for a few years. She said his mom just had a hard time. She lost it. Said she was struggling. And so we ended up taking care of him. You know what I told her? I said, thank you. I said, he's our deacon. He's our chairman of deacons. <laughs> Esther was an orphan due to tragedy. And Mordecai raised her so that she could be used mightily by God. You are a miracle. An uncle went into a fire and get, pulled you out. And you are a part of this church and such a part that I can't imagine us without you. And you, every one of you, you're a miracle. The positions that you hold, the things that you do, are either furthering the kingdom of God or you're damaging it. You're either living out a testimony that causes people to look at you and to go, like she did one day in a college campus when she went up to a girl and Holmes Junior College, she said, 
there's something about you. You just smile all the time. What is it about you? 19 years old, a widow at 19 on college campus who was saved because she looked at a girl who illuminated Christ. That girl had no idea the impact of her life around the world. You're the kingdom of God where you work, where you live. You're drawing people to God's kingdom. And at times when things are not right, you're the voice of conscience and truth that says that's not right. I can't let you treat this person that way. They are of value to God and they're of value to me. Let's close this prayer. Lord, we thank you. We love you. Lord, help us to understand the call on every one of our lives and the purpose and the plan that you have. May we always lift up Jesus, always further the kingdom, always stand for what is right, always stand for people that may be hurt no matter who they are. Lord, I know we live in a world today that seems to be torn and ripped by the LGBT movement. So many groups that are wanting attention or wanting their rights. And Lord, may nobody, nobody, even people are in a community such as the LGBT or whoever they may be, may they see nothing in us but the love of Christ. May we love people no matter the tags, no matter what they wear, no matter how they look, no matter the color of their skin, no matter their economic status, no matter their educational level. May we just love people in Jesus and try to draw them to you. Lord, any changes you'll make in their life, let you through the power of your Holy Spirit make them. You've just told us to be fishers of men. May we fish, you'll do the cleaning. That's great. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.